The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good morning. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, California, streaming online at KUCI.org and podcasting on iTunes. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd, the show's engineer. We've enjoyed bringing this show since 2005. Your host is Mari Frank, a local attorney since 1985. She's a certified information privacy professional and the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, Protecting Yourself with a Personal Privacy Audit, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. Mari's testified many times on privacy issues in Congress and the California Legislature. She served as a privacy expert for numerous court cases nationwide and at a White House press conference featured on C-SPAN. You may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, The O'Reilly Factor, and many more shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Mari, what's our show about this morning? Well, Lloyd, today our show is How to Spot all sorts of danger in front of us. And we have a wonderful guest who's been on our show before, Wendy Patrick, who is an attorney. She's actually the Deputy District Attorney of Special Operations Divisions in San Diego. And she's written this new book, which is called Red Flags, How to Spot Frenemies, Underminers, and Toxic People in Your Life. And one of the great books that I've read years ago is called The Gift of Fear. And the author, Gavin DeBecker, said, this about this book. He said, red flags will leave you better able to see signs of deception and danger clearly enough to avoid being tricked and early enough to protect yourself. This is a great book. I've really been enjoying reading it. So let me just tell you a little bit more about Wendy. Uh, Wendy is the San Diego County Deputy District Attorney, recently named the 2014 Ronald M. George Public Lawyer of the Year by the California State Bar's Public Law Section, and she's been recognized by her peers as one of the top 10 criminal attorneys in San Diego by the San Diego Daily Transcript, and she's completed over 150 trials ranging from hate crimes to domestic violence to first-degree murder. Her bio goes on and on and on, but we have it on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Well, you'll see her gorgeous face and you'll see her bio and uh, we link to um, her website as well. So let, let's get started right away. Wendy, it's so great to talk to you again. We've had you on the show before and it's always such a treat. Oh, thanks for having me on, Mary. It's always a pleasure. Okay, so let's uh, let's find out about this new book. What inspired you to read to write this book? You know, it really was a culmination of twenty years of questions about people asking me. You know, how can I 
possibly make myself better able to tell the good from the bad, to separate the dangerous from the desirable. And, you know, for whatever reason, most of my career has been spent prosecuting cases that have victims. In other words, you know, every crime has a victim. But the kind of cases I have have victims that have really been seduced, lured, or manipulated into giving something away, whether it's entering the wrong kind of relationship, giving too much financial information. And really, over time, I began to see some patterns emerge, as you can imagine, and really decided after two decades of this to really put, you know, uh, pen to paper, as they say, virtually, and really write down and, and find corroborating research to support, which is what the book does, some of the ways in which people, even intelligent, credentialed, well-educated people, are terribly fooled. Yes, there is a lot of deception out there. So what are some of the reasons that bad people look good? You know, uh, there's a lot of different reasons that bad people can look good. A lot of reasons bad people look good have to do with, interestingly, the way they make the person feel. So the ten reasons that I talk about in my book are bad people can look good because they are attractive, powerful, credible, attentive, affirming, Similar, familiar, exciting, forbidden, and dangerous. Now, what do you think about that, Mary? Most people think about that list of, uh, well, gosh, you know, that describes my ideal mate. If you can, you know, have all of those categories in a fashion that it's not harmful and it's just exciting and arousing. But the problem is both good and bad people have those qualities. Some more than others. Some have a couple. Some have all of them. But when you're trying to separate the bad from the good, you can't just look at the way the person makes you feel. You're going to just make choices based on your emotion rather than logic. But it's just that simple, and that's what most of us do. So really, that's that's really why we want to uh, introduce potential suitors to our best friend and our mother, right? So we yeah. can get an objective perspective. Yeah, um, but those are really the ten reasons I talk about. Well, when we think about somebody like Bernie Madoff, who got away with it for years and years and years, and he was so well-respected. I mean, he is one of these people that, you know, there were red flags out there, but but it seems like people were just ignoring them. And don't we all do that? Absolutely. And that's a great example that you give. And there's some other examples in the same fashion that you, you know, you kind of look at folks that are so popular and so well-respected. You know, I've got a whole chapter on credibility. And, you know, that example is really a credibility example. How does somebody make so much money, is so prosperous financially, you know, has the credentials, has the look, has the articulation? yet has the psychopathy that is necessary to be a total manipulator. You know, and and there's some great research into, you know, psychopathic traits in the workplace where you get a lot of people that are really successful financially, have a bunch of advanced degrees, are are very well-spoken and just shine at board meetings, yet underneath that polished veneer lurks the darkness. And that is why we fall for these people. There's nothing outwardly visible that would lead us to conclude that they are as dangerous inside as they really are. Yes. Now, are these people sociopaths? So, uh, the sociopaths really are, you know, walking among us. There's a great book that I cite called Snakes in Suits, and I cite a lot of the research um, that talks about how some of these characters are slithering into our workplaces and even to the boardrooms, and they are calling the shots in a fashion that only benefits themselves. That's one of the reasons I have a couple of chapters that are really hit hard, this idea of they are not just in our personal lives, but also in our professional lives. So that is why I talk about the, the four flags, right? because the book's all about red flags. And the four flags I talk about are focus, 
lifestyle associations and goals. And the focus is not your focus, but theirs. What captures a person's attention? In other words, do they focus on themselves? Do they focus on others on a first date? Are they focused on your your body or your brain right. in the workplace? Are they focused on short-term gain or long-term goals? Um, lifestyle, the second one, talks about how does the person spend their time? What are their hobbies and interests? In the workplace, you've got to look at what I call red flags after five, right? Because everybody kind of has the same job during the day, but you want to know what this person does after work. Right. Associations is the A. What sort of company do they keep? This whole birds of a feather mentality. To what organizations do they belong? And then the last one is goals. What are the priorities? Are there ambitious selfish or selfless? Now, you've got to spend some time getting to know somebody or at least researching them, which is so easy to do nowadays on the Internet, right, right. in order to find out what's behind the polished veneer. So these things aren't going to necessarily leap out at you, but these are the things you need to know to be able to read below the surface. Yes. And in your job, you see all this deception. And, you know, unfortunately, we also see it on the Internet. We see it on Tinder. We see it on dating sites. We see it everywhere around us. And now, with the advent of the Internet, I think it's even easier to deceive people. Wouldn't you think so? Absolutely. And, you know, I I talk in the book about what I call the, the cyberspace chameleon. This is a guy who can be on several different dating sites at once, wearing a different hat in each one. Uh, on the Extreme Sports website, he's a kite surfer. On a literary website, he's a poet. On a dog lover's website, he's a proud owner of a Doberman Pinscher. Little research, I mean, this is a jack of all trades and master of none, and you wouldn't know unless you'd done the extra legwork and figured out this is just a manipulator looking to, you know, catch some fast dates on whatever site he can, and, and hopefully that's the extent of it. Hopefully it's not also a financial manipulator. But you're right, cyber optics is what I call it. This is a place where people can misrepresent very easily and flat-out lie about numbers, right? Height, weight, and age. (laughs) Right, right. So you've got to be savvy enough to check these people out. Exactly. You have a chapter called The The Optics of Illusion, The Power of Attraction. What about good-looking people that that works for us. Right. In that chapter, I talk about the the primary method of manipulation, which I call the halo effect. Um, That's what the research calls it. The research identifies the halo effect as this phenomena where we attribute to good-looking people all kinds of positive characteristics and qualities that they don't have. It is amazing how many people do this across the board in dating, in choosing uh, people for a job, in hiring and firing in academia, in criminal defendants deciding whether or not somebody's guilty or not, and then what kind of punishment should they receive. Voting studies across the board, people give good-looking people a break. And that accounts, and we, you know, we never want to really admit it, but it accounts for subconsciously and almost a knee-jerk reaction why we tend to attribute positive qualities to good-looking people. And this is why I, you know, chose the, the title, The Optics of Illusion. It's just an illusion. There's, there's no tie-in uh, that uh, any empirical research ties in that they actually, good, good-looking people really are smarter, funnier, more trustworthy, make better parents. The research doesn't support that. Some do, some don't, but there's no correlation. 
we make that correlation subconsciously, and then we tend to act on it. So that is one of the ways in which good-looking people have an edge when it comes to being able to manipulate us. Yeah, yeah. Well, people, you know, when they go in for a job interview, they're going to try and look their best, right? They're, they're going to try and speak their best and do everything. So, you know, if someone does come in and they don't look so good, they don't look put together, that is a big red flag for you as well as to how they're going to treat your, you know, the in customer service or whatever. So it, it is kind of, we are taught to look at how does someone dress, how does someone keep themselves clean. So I think there is that kind of dichotomy as well. And then, of course, what you're talking about is really that deception of like, oh, because they're so good looking, they must have something else as well. Just yeah, the interesting thing about the red flags that are talked about in this book is that they are also green lights. You just have to use them to your advantage and use them authentically and genuinely. Let's take the example we're talking about, dressing for success in a job interview. Why wouldn't you? Especially if you've read this research that I cite that tells yeah. you this is what, I mean, people get ahead. They are treated more favorably. There's more positive qualities attributed to them. Why wouldn't you look your best? And the same thing with all the rest of the qualities. There's nothing nefarious about about these qualities themselves. They're simply right. they're simply the, the things that are emotionally appealing to other people. So in other words, you you make yourself a green light when you use them with beneficial motives and right. with a, a pure heart and with authenticity. And so the whole all of the studies can also be used to help you get ahead benevolently rather than malevolently. Yes. Well you know we're we're sitting on the campus of the University of California And I'm wondering about what we can tell people about what they should do when they go out on a first date or maybe they've met somebody through Match.com. You know, let's say somebody has all these things. They look like they've got a great job. They look like they're nice looking, all these things. So what what kinds of things should you find out about that person on that first date? What kind of questions should you ask on that first date to find out if there's these uh, deceptions? Well, I, a couple of things on a first date. Uh, let me go through the flags first of all. One okay. of the, the, you know, the first one is focus. Right. So you want to know whether your paramour asks about you uh, or is focused on telling you about himself. Does he emphasize financial status, relationship potential, or sexual prowess? One of the, you know, the topics of conversation, in other words. Um, but having said that, it's also, you also have to be aware of somebody that pulls what I call a reverse selfie. This is the, this is the man, and I'm not just trying to pick on the guys, but because, um, because you asked, this is the guy that asks you so many questions about yourself that what he does is pretty much evades the responsibility of revealing any information about him. Mm. Now, the reason this came to my attention is, you know, we prosecute a lot of date rapists. And one of the things a date rapist sometimes wants to do, especially if it's a stranger, is they don't want to be tracked down by the police. (laughs) If they get a woman that's actually brave enough to admit how much she had to drink, sadly, that's often a factor, and reveal what ended up happening. So the less information he can get away with, with disclosing, the better. And what does the woman see? The woman sees a man who seems to be very uniquely focused on her and she takes that as an incredible compliment. You know, because like Dale Carnegie's famous book, How to Win Friends and Influence People, it's the people that ask us a lot of questions about ourselves and seem to be genuinely interested that we tend to trust and we tend to like, and we tend to spend more time with them, and especially if it's a first date context, we may actually end up spending more time with them than we should, not even realizing that mm-hmm. this person has told us virtually nothing about themselves. 
So that is one of the, the things I talk about in the, when you look about on focus. Um, lifestyle is also very key on a first date. Even though, you know, maybe you haven't done as much Internet research as you're going to, you can tell by whether somebody shows up, let's say, late and underdressed or early and well-groomed. I mean, gosh, some guys do early reconnaissance. They check out the restaurant and where it is. They get the best table. You know, they do all sorts of of things to, to impress their date. And that's, that is very impressive to, to a woman on a first date. Uh, they also want to make sure they've made the right kind of reservation so the two don't end up crammed like sardines onto stools eating in the bar. Right. But you also want to make sure that it's not something where a man you hardly know has reserved a beachfront table at a catered, secluded spot. I mean, you know, you yeah. don't want somebody that's gone over the top. That's kind of creepy as well. Right. But you can tell a lot about somebody's lifestyle by the kind of place they choose. Is it a trendy sports bar? Is it a romantic restaurant? Is it a five-star? Is it a one-star? You know, there, there are so many things you can tell right off the bat if you are paying attention. Mm. And, you know, same thing with associations and goals. A lot of that comes out through, through conversation. Um, but you can tell what kind of goal somebody has. Let's go back to what kind of a restaurant or venue do they choose for a first date. You know, is it a, is it a daytime date at the zoo? Or is, is it a, a bar where the first thing the person does is order a couple of rounds of shots? I mean, goals are so transparent with some people that it's really, you know, uh, you can tell. People say, oh, you can't tell on a first date. You can tell a lot on a first date. And my suggestion to women out there nowadays, especially young women, is make it a point to glean as much information as you can on a first date. Because you know what, Mari? That's when you're, first, that's when you're most objective, aren't you? Right, right. Once you become emotionally hooked, your objectivity becomes less and less. You trade in your reading glasses for rose-colored glasses. Right. And now even if you do see red flags, you downplay them or they become what I call a lighter shade of red. Yes, yes. So, you know, it's that old adage that I always hear from people in law enforcement and from people, you know, in your profession to say, hey, if they seem too good to be true, they probably are too good to be true. (laughs) Amen. Amen. (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, just, but that's how they make you fall for them. And, you know, it's, and uh, sadly, another of the too good to be true category is uh, cases I've prosecuted almost my whole career, which are the child molesters. You get these guys that, and again, Statistically, a lot of men get caught, much more men than women. Um, they approach, let's say, a single mom raising a child on her own, you know, having a little bit of financial distress, maybe some emotional distress. I mean, it's hard work raising kids when you've got two, a two-parent family. Yes. This guy seems too good to be true, and he is. How do you spot him? This is somebody that is, you know, volunteering their time to run errands for her, or that's spending time at the house, fixing her car. But when you really look at red flags, I'm going to really talk about the first one, which is focus. The focus, if it's truly a paramour, should be on her, not on her children. And an unnatural focus on a child is really a double whammy. I give the example of, you know, parents. How long can you sit on the floor and play with your child? What, can you make it an hour? If so, congratulations. Right, right. A child molester can sit and play games on the floor with the child all day long. Mm. Because his focus is not on entertaining the child. His focus is the child. That is an enormous red flag that parents don't pay enough attention to. Now, I know this because I've prosecuted so many cases. I learn about what, you know, what were the red flags? What, what, what do these cases have in common? And that's one of the things they have in common. Right, right. So when you say too good to be true, you bet that's true with a lot of different kinds of manipulators.
Mm. So how about in the workplace? How are manipulative people really successful in the workplace? Well, red flags in the workplace come in a, a lot of different kinds of, of um, you know, shapes and sizes. Let me give you a couple. One of them I call frenemies with benefits, okay? You are the one getting the emotional benefits. Your frenemy is getting things like you agreeing to take over her shift, covering for her if she's late, helping her do her job even though it's obvious she is being paid to do it. What are you getting out of this? You are getting the benefit of somebody that maybe showers you with adoration, with admiration, with compliments, buttering you up. Somebody that makes it worthwhile going to work because of the way she makes you feel. It's not always mm-hmm. the women, but I use that as an example because there's some, there's some examples I use in my book about how sometimes male employees love this. They love to help female employees and vice versa as well. I mean, one of the things that, that the research makes clear is neither gender has a corner on the market. People in the workplace that want to get you to help them do their job, yet they're the ones getting paid for it, will use these emotional rewards where you are getting the benefit. They make you feel smart. They make you feel attractive. They make you feel competent because there are different emotional benefits in the workplace than there are in your personal life, right? In your personal life, maybe it's about how you look because now it's become so dangerous to compliment people in the workplace. Everybody's worried about a sexual harassment suit. Right, right. So a lot of manipulators in the workplace are focused more on uh, buttering up your intellect, your cognitive abilities, your vast knowledge, how, how important you are. So those are the kinds of emotional appealing rewards they will use in the workplace. So be aware of that. Now, what's to say there isn't somebody that is absolutely impressing you with genuine, genuine flattery? Because people do that every single day. Look at whether or not they stand to gain anything from you. Are there uh, are there compliments paired with things that they would like you to do for them? Do they want you to introduce them to somebody? Do they want you to help them with a particular project? In other words, you know, a lot of the stuff is common sense, but we are so busy in our multitasking world that sometimes we don't step back and take the time to think about it. That's why it's great to be able to vet your friends and coworkers with, you know, other friends from outside of work, with family members. Sometimes these people are objective. Sometimes they have more time to actually step back and, and look at this. But when you're faced with what I call the ego predator, you really should have somebody else that maybe knows them too that can give you an objective assessment on whether this person really is in such awe of you because it's all good, it's all authentic, or whether they have an ulterior motive. So those are some of the red flags we look at in the workplace. Right. Now, how about in another huge issue in the workplace that we see all the time, and I know you see for sure, is embezzlement by people who have been long-term employees. What about that? Yeah, um, I talk in the book about what I call, uh, you know, history power, really. It's actually a psychological concept. But historical familiarity is the term I use, and what this is in the familiarity chapter. And it has to do with exactly what you just asked about. Sometimes you've got somebody in the workplace that maybe you don't even know that well, but you've seen them on and off for, you know, it could be decades. And just by virtue of seeing somebody frequently, the research shows that person becomes familiar, you begin to like them, you have positive feelings, you trust them for no other reason than they've been around. How bad can they be? It's sort of a, a psychological shortcut to, to giving them the benefit of the doubt. Some of the famous embezzlement cases that we've seen have to do with this type of historical familiarity. Sure, the person you've been passing them in the hallway and at the water cooler for 20 years, they've also been stealing from the company for 20 years. Right, right. But they're so 
so under the radar because they're, you know, how long, how many times are you going to pass somebody in the hallway before your guard is going to go down? There is nothing about them that would be out of sorts. Now, if you had to go back and, you know, double check everything and really play Monday, Monday morning quarterback and what should you have seen, look at it all in retrospect, you often find out that besides passing this person in the hallway, you don't know anything about them. This is also, you know, the chapter starts out with the example of the axe murderer next door, right? What does the, what does the, the neighbor of the serial killer always say when they're interviewed by the media? But he seemed like such a nice guy. Yeah, he kept it's to himself. He was friendly. Why yeah. did he seem like a nice guy? No other reason than you saw him, right? You pulled out of your driveways. Maybe you saw him occasionally at the gas station, the grocery store. You knew next to nothing about him. That type of thing causes financial loss to go on in the workplace for years because if you don't know enough about somebody, you don't go to lunch with them, you don't know anything about their family, you don't know anything about them behind the scenes except what you see. That's how it happens. Yeah, Wendy, how about these small businesses where you have a, uh, your bookkeeper or your controller or you know someone who does your books for years and years and years and then they do this to you and it's because you've had such a long-term relationship with them. What about that? Well, it's the same thing. You know, you've got to take steps to learn about the people that you employ. Remember, I gave the example of red flags after five. What does somebody do after work? Do they head to the gym? Do they head to the bar? Do they head to, you know, a video arcade? In which case, I would probably suspect suspect a pedophile, but of course, I'm jaded. But you've got to look at that kind of thing. What do, what do somebody like doing with their life? Remember, the second flag is lifestyle. What are their interests? What are their hobbies? You've got to know something about these people are in order gamblers? to be able to have data to use to make a decision as to whether or not they are trustworthy. Yes, we just heard about, I forgot which company, a huge company, where a gentleman was um, gambling, going crazy gambling. He was the controller of the company, and then they found out he took millions of dollars and he had a gambling problem. So you're right. What is he doing on the weekend? What is he doing every night? He's going to the casino. Sadly, you can do that online nowadays. Yes. And that's another, that's another, you know, the red flags online is huge. There's just so many ways in which nowadays we can take advantage of research. Now, I don't, you know, we... Trust but trust but verify in this season has become distrust but verify. We don't yeah. all want to become skeptics because I don't want this our segment to be over without me saying that in two decades of prosecuting the worst manipulators you have ever seen, I can tell you that most people are good. Yes. For every arsonist that burns down a house, hundreds of people jump into you know the repair mode, helping them rebuild. Yeah. For every child that's abducted, millions of people are looking. So most people are good people that yes. just want to do the right thing. Right. But for the sliver of society that I deal with on a daily basis, these red flags will help you catch them. Exactly. And just speaking about that, if you're just tuning in, we are speaking with Wendy Patrick, Ph.D., who's also a practicing attorney. And in the DA's office in San Diego, and she wrote this wonderful book called Red Flags, How to Spot Frenemies, Underminers, and Toxic People in Your Life. Now, you talk about how bad people um, really fulfill our emotional needs. And so what do we do when we find ourselves, like finding ourselves, like really being attracted to this person that they're doing it? What should we do? I mean, what kinds of questions should we ask? Well, the best thing you can do is get the information you need to make a decision as to whether or not you are falling for them because of the way they make you feel, which is really the, the biggest the biggest problem that we have. Um, or, or are you being paranoid? You know, there are sometimes, some people just never seem to get the benefit of the doubt. You know, when you meet somebody who's too good to be true, lots of people 
genuinely care for you. They genuinely want to help you. They genuinely love you. They admire you. They they give you the attention you need, not because they want anything from you, but they want to spend time with you. And so that's one of the things that, you know, really having good friends and family members you can share, not that you're going to disclose any confidential secrets. That's a, a, a deal breaker right from the beginning. You don't want to be betraying confidences. But introducing somebody to your peer group or to your family or to your friends, getting a second opinion, you know, there are ways in which you can make sure that you're falling for the right person. Because in a lot of cases, somebody's a big, bright, you know, a green light. They're not a red flag. And we worry about it because we always want to second guess everybody nowadays. But the key is information sharing. You've got to have enough information to work with in order to be able to use these four flags. Because if you don't have information, you can't plug it in. And you, that's why the internet's so dangerous, is you really don't have the kind of data you need to work with to make a good informed decision before you meet somebody in person. But if in the real world, you know, once the relationship moves offline also, you do have enough to work with. And you don't want to be overly skeptical because that's no way to live life. Yet many people live life that way because they've just been burned so many times. And that was another thing that really motivated me to write this book because it gives you enough information to feel comfortable going back into the water. And I love that analogy because it really works with the red flags, doesn't it? it right? Does. Once you take the red flags off the shoreline, you can go back in the water, but you're afraid to. You don't have to be afraid to if you've done the background necessary to be able to you know, familiarize yourself with the good signs, the bad signs, and make an, an informed decision as to whether somebody is dangerous or desirable or somewhere in between where you want to pursue the relationship and learn a little more. Sounds perfect. We are just out of time, Wendy. So I am going to give your website. It's wendypatrickphd.com. This wonderful book, Red Flags, How to Spot Frenemies, Underminers, and Trick Toxic People in Your Life. Wendy, we will keep in touch, and thank you so much for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Okay, bye-bye. You've been bye-bye. Li- you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning at 8 a.m. and at privacy piracy and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Thanks. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.